0: So it's the 1st of February and I'm sat in my cold, dark studio at the bottom of the garden and I'm talking to a ray of sunshine who happens to be sat in a ray of sunshine (laughs) in LA. I'm sat talking to my dear friend, and I mean that from the marrow of my bones, my dear friend Kerry Kelly, who once trusted me with some work actually. And I fear I didn't do the best job for you, actually. Um, but oh, I don't. I think that was the I brief. think
1: that you were amazing. I think the conditions were really toxic. That's a whole other conversation we can get through. <laughs> I can
0: build on that, actually, because I have worked <laughs> with them since then, or met them since then. Really interesting. But that's not how we met. How we met was I turned <laughs> up, when I was involved in the Do Lectures all those years ago, I turned up in America to... the the auctioneer at do usa and i was a bit jet lagged but i was really looking forward to it and i took the job of signing people in which i really enjoy that kind of you know welcome that kind of greeter and um this beautiful young woman comes up to me and she says hey i'm Kerry. i'm the yoga teacher and i went hey i'm mark i'm gonna (laughs) sign you in and she said do you do yoga and i said Kerry, I'll be honest, I'm a big man and I don't fold up very neatly. (laughs) Favourite quote of all time. It's a brilliantly British self-deprecating thing. I I do love yoga. You turned me, Kerry Kelly, and you were great. You just went, well, that means you should do it more. And I did, and I love it, and I fell in love with the person you are. And were you with me when we were walking back from Ken's shed and we followed the ghosts back? Was that with you? I think so.
1: Oh, that was such an amazing weekend. I mean, thank you for that testimony. And I just want to say uh, for anyone, and I'm sure all of your listeners know this about you, like meeting you is just like, it's such a blessing. And it's also a wild ride. And as soon as I met you, I knew that this was going to be a long, long, (laughs) long road of friendship and creative collaboration and play and laughter.
0: Absolutely. And vice versa, right? Vice versa. We are more similar than I realized at the other time. And since then, Kerry Kelly, because I can't just say one of your names, I have to say them both. I know um, it's weird. I've got two friends who who, who I, I I referred to like that. Since then, I I've watched you, and from the outside, it's looked like yoga, 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 not yoga. Oh, boosh, not yoga. Like like doing stuff that is that are socially progressive, becoming a campaigner becoming the oxygen on other people's campaigns. And then Mm. you produced a book called American Detox and your world kind of went a bit bonkers. And um, (laughs) it's amazing. But look, we'll come to that in a minute. But Kerry, you know me. You know how I start these conversations. Three questions. I maybe don't know this. I don't know. So it would be interesting. I'm looking forward to these answers. What did your childhood, what did it smell like? What did it taste like and what did it sound like?
1: I love this so much. Well, I feel like the the first two answers are the same. So I grew up in an Italian household outside of New York City. And so my childhood, my growing up, smelled and tasted a lot like spaghetti and meatballs, like all the time. <laughs> um, marinara on the stovetop, basil, you know, oregano, So that was like a big part. And it's funny because I have another friend, my friend, Mark Gonzalez, who also asks questions like this, like, you know, what were the tastes? What was the food of your childhood? And my answer is always spaghetti and meatballs, right? And to this day, right, I have such a soft spot for spaghetti and meatballs because that's like the food of like my my home, the food of like my childhood. It's like my (laughs) self-soothing, It's like where I go when I'm real stressed out. I get a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs, and so that feels super true for me. And what was the third question? Well,
0: before we can third question is, what did your childhood sound like? But before we dig into that, I'm really interested in this because it's kind of a comfort food, right? It's that beautiful combination of carb, fat, and protein, right? It, it's got all that going on in there. <laughs> but it's it's more than that, right? The beauty of spaghetti and meatballs. I'll tell you why I, I don't eat meat anymore, but I'll eat a vegan version of that. Is most of it ends up ramen chops somewhere else, <laughs> and I can revisit it later. And then there's the oil, right? If you do it properly, your spaghetti is beautifully coated in oil, and, and that feels great on the mouth. There's a brilliant mouth feel to that. But more than that, it's like a hug for the mouth. There's something. So, and I'm the same with mashed potato and baked beans. Yes, actually. but there's something that's like oh. I didn't know I needed a hug, but I really did. That's me. What about you?
1: The other thing you're making me think about is how spaghetti and meatballs is always messy. Like, you just can't be polite and eat spaghetti, And right? that, that Can I curse?
0: Yeah, please. I love cursing. That yeah. shit
1: is going to splatter all over your nice white shirt, right? It's going to totally. hit the person next to you, you know? There's gonna be remnant noodles hanging, you know, you can never quite circle the spaghetti around the spoon and the fork. And so it's just making me also think about like the way in which eating like that, especially like in a communal setting and with family, just gives you permission to be messy, to be sloppy, you know, like it's not, you know, it's not neat and tidy, which feels a lot like life. And I just think I was brought up in a household like that where, you know, we weren't refined, you know, I was raised by a nurse and a fireman. You know, we were middle class, um, living outside of New York, eating lots of Italian food all the time. But there was permission in our household, you know, to be human and to be messy, you know, and to be, you know, however we were in any given moment. And so sort of spaghetti and meatballs also kind of symbolizes that spirit for me that like, you know, I don't care how hard you try, like you're not going to get this perfectly right. It's not going to be, you know, precise and right and like neat and tidy and all the ways I think. You know, I'm thinking about like a dominant culture. You know, always is trying to like want us to be more of that, and so you know, it was like subversive in that way.
0: Brilliant. I've I love. I knew we could finish after this. It's a great conversation here, but I love this idea mm-hmm. of you'd never have that meal on a first date, right? That's not a first date meal. Yes. Right? So you've either got to want that person in your life, or they're already in your life, right? This is a second date or a familiar meal that matters. Not because you want to impress somebody, but because you want them to see you. It yep. matters because of that. I love it.
1: If you're a preemptive dater, I think it's a perfect first date. <laughs> it's like, let's just cut right to the chase. Like, yeah. are you are you willing to be with me around spaghetti and meatballs? And if not, like, this isn't going to work out.
0: I love it. <laughs> I absolutely, absolutely love it. So that was your taste and your smell. You're a Parmesan person. I'm guessing you put a little sprinkle of grated parmesan oh yeah yeah
1: and let me tell you something I've since become dairy-free because I'm allergic to it yeah and I was with my chiropractor who broke the news to me and I said but I my first response was but I'm Italian and he's like (laughs) okay and then I said okay so like what can I not eat and he was like butter you can't eat butter you can't eat this you can't and you can't eat cheese and I said okay but what about parmesan he goes is that cheese and I was like Of course it's cheese, but it's essential, you know, it's like vitamin D, like I must have it. And he didn't understand because he wasn't Italian, but (laughs) that is my life now.
0: But there are a couple of very good vegan alternatives and about 30 that are shit, right? But there's a couple if you, if you hunt around.
1: 99% of vegan cheese is real bad. And there are a Mm. couple that are great. Vegan butter is great also. Like it's really, you can actually get around dairy really easily, but... Cheese is tough. Like I'm, we're ne- we're just never gonna find a vegan brie that's gonna cut oh, it.
0: I can help you there. <laughs> what? Yeah, there's a company in the UK. I'll post you some. They're called Mouse's Favorite, and they do an incredible brie, and they do an incredible blue brie. And I think them. I think it's Whoa. coconut milk. It's beautiful. Really good. Yeah. So remind okay. me, and I'll and I'll put okay. some in a parcel and I'll send it. You just overseas. changed my
1: life. You just oh, well, changed hope, my
0: life. Taste it first, right? Taste it first. <laughs> So, sounds, what were what, what the sounds of your childhood? What were the sounds of growing up? I'm
1: having like two things come up for me. The first thing that popped into my mind, and I, I feel like I need to like call my therapist about this one, was church bells, mm-hmm. particularly because I was raised very Catholic, but also we lived behind the church. So the bells were just like going off all day long. It was like a mainstay in my life, right? And, and when I think back, you know, to like my Catholic indoctrination, which I'm still unpacking, right? That was a big part of like some of the stuff that I wrote about in my book. You know, I I went to church every Sunday for 20 years, right? Like that's like hardcore teaching. And so anyway, so like church sounds, church music, church hymnal was definitely a part of the sounds of my my youth and my growing up. The second thing that came up for me were the Beatles. Wow. I just had like a a house. My stepdad was really into classic rock and the oldies and played music nonstop and had some epic records. Um, I was actually just going through them with my mom a couple of weeks ago when I was home for the holidays. And so, yeah, so I was exposed. I didn't appreciate it at the time because I wanted to listen to House of Pain. And, you know, but I was like really immersed in like some of the, the Doobie brothers and, Duo music, I mean, it's just like awesome, and so, like, now I have like such the muscle memory around that music in my life is huge. And you know, I just watched that Beatles 95 hour documentary, which was incredible. How amazing is
0: it? How amazing, but it was
1: like it was like time travel for me. I was like, oh my god, and so I just got really, 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 really into the Beatles all over again, and so, yeah, so like definitely the Beatles, you know, definitely Zeppelin, you know, like once I started to become a little bit more of a rebel in my life.
0: (laughs) I think you were born a rebel, weren't you? You were born
1: a rebel. I kind of was. I mean, it's funny, like, you know, when you write a book, as you know, you have to like really dig deep and sort of like reconstruct your life based on memory, but also based on where you're at in that moment. And And I have like a couple wake-up calls that I write about in the book around when I became like a rebel or when I became politicized. But I think you're right. I'm pretty sure I came out of the womb kicking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty certain you did as well.
1: My parents divorced when I was one. So I like, I very quickly adapted to kind of being an adult child, an overly responsible child, an independent child, a performer child. I mean, my earliest memories of me kind of, Hanging out with my mom and hanging out with the adults, and you know, just sort of feeling like an adult in a four year old's body. And so, yeah, I do think like I had that spirit in me from the get go, but obviously, life conditioned that spirit in lots of different ways.
0: It's interesting. I've seen photos of you when you were younger, and you did look precociously old. I don't mean that in like you looked old. You look like an old soul. That's what you look like in a kid's body. Did you have siblings? Did you have brothers or sisters?
1: I had, so my I have two step uh, siblings. My brother was 10 years younger and my sister was 16. I had a big, long stretch of like only child syndrome (laughs) before two amazing siblings came into my life, but at very different ages. Right. And so I was like, so, we're all of us are really like generationally different, but we all get along great.
0: I would have guessed you were an only child, right? From looking at the photographs <laughs> and from knowing you, wait, I would wait. have guessed and from from getting stoned of you that night, I would have guessed um, you were an, an only child. Let's follow that. Not to hard right to see. back. No, not at all. Not at all. And that's interesting because you feel more. And, you know, particularly with mum and dad splitting up, did you carry on a relationship with dad? Were you able to? Carry on that relationship
1: yeah I was yeah and my dad is still alive. my birth father is still alive and and I'm very very close with my mom but you know I want to say that like looking back it felt like it was like my mom and me against the world and my mom and I, my mom was a young mom and so we just got so tight and I think I kind of assumed my mom was a good mom so she didn't make me feel this way I want to be clear but I think I assumed the role of like her sister and her girlfriend. My mom treated me like a child. Like she didn't like misparent me, but I I realized that like that's really where my feminism started. And I'll I'll share this with you when my mom told me that she got engaged to my stepdad Joe. I was around 7 years old and I remember saying to her, "What? Like we don't need a man? We got each other."
0: Tell me about, you've got a 10-year gap between when, when you were born and when your next half-sibling was born. That's just you, mum, stepdad, an American-Italian family. So love, church, music, food. Did you have any
1: grandparents? Yes, yes. I was very, very close with my grandparents. My stepdad didn't come into my life until I was seven. So I had like a big, oh, like okay. a lot of my developmental years were with me, my mom, and my two grandparents who I was very, very close with. I also had an aunt, a godmother who I was super tight with. She was like the coolest lady of all time. And and she died tragically when I was 13. That was sort of one of my first like- I was mom's what?
0: sister. Well, that's my mom's, a, sister. mom's
1: sister, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But we were tight. And oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to say about the sounds of my youth is, um, if you've been to New York, you've heard this, but like the sounds are like, you know, we grew up in Westchester and so everybody talks like this. And so that also was the sound of my youth. You know, we all talked like, you know, like we were a bunch of, you know, gangster people. <laughs> and when I go home to New York, that still happens. Like I'll all of a sudden like hear myself and I'll have, you know, I'll be talking to my mom and I'll be like, mom, you know, are the meatballs ready? You know, isn't that, <laughs> it just comes right back. And so that also, my stepdad was from Inwood, you know, really just thick New York accent all around me, which is like a symphony of New Yorkness.
0: Has that gone? I'm, I'm really interested in this, right? Because I love New York, I and mean, I didn't always love New York, but I really love New York now, and I kind of feel that the personalities that sat behind those accents have been priced out, like they, they, they're they're maybe in Queens, right? But they're they're, they're going out of there as well, right? That's gone. Deep Brooklyn,
1: Queens, Staten Island, Westchester, Long Island, Jersey, even, you know, like, I think you're right. I think, you know, there's been a lot of brawl Mm. in New York and in many places, right, around the country and around the world because of, of, you know, deep inequality in the price of real estate. And so, yeah, so there's been a lot of people pushed out, but there's still a good, like, holdout in Westchester,
0: (laughs) is there. There's, <laughs> a, there's still a posse, right?
1: Yeah, but you're right, like, you're not going to hear it in Greenwich Village, right? Like, you're just not, like, you're not, if you really want to, if you want to experience New York, you want to go to Astoria, you want to go to Arthur Avenue, you know, you want to go uptown to Harlem, and you'll start to hear, I think, some of the the deeper, sort of, more complex accent of old New York. It's really interesting, because I didn't realize the stepdad didn't arrive for, sort of,
0: six or seven years, and I've seen the photographs of you as a kid. You look fiercely independent. You look, you know, you know your mind and you just, you and mum and your grandparents, right? Are they still alive? No. No. When did
1: they die? My grandfather passed uh, 2001, right before 9-11, I think. And then my grandmother passed about 10 years later.
0: Right. But I can feel this um, bond, right? I can feel this. It's like like, Mm -hmm. listening to this reminds me of reading Arthur Miller's view from a bridge when those Italian families, Mm -hmm. they were so close and so Mm -hmm. so respectful. And then all of a sudden, stepdad comes in. Yeah. How did you deal with that? And more importantly, how did he deal with that?
1: I mean, I feel so bad for my stepdad because I, as you know, was like a firecracker. But I was also like you know, baby feminist and stubborn and, you know, (laughs) and I'm sure like ideological in all sorts of ways. And so I mean, there are things about my relationship with my stepdad that are so awesome and beautiful. Like I would often go to him when I needed to work around my mom. Um, so for example, I went to my stepdad when I was like, listen, I know Santa Claus is not real. This poor guy who I had to like, I brought all the like really shitty things to him. And I like put him on the spot. I'm like, you need to tell me the truth, you know? So he was amazing in that way. And he, you know, like taught me to swim and all these other things that are a big part of my life now. And I was a strong-minded, independent woman. And I really was like, me and my mom, we don't need to be taken care of by a man. You know, we're strong feminists in the world. I don't know where I learned that when I, like at seven years old, that's not how my mom was, but I think I just developed, right. A really strong, undeniable sense of independence, which I carry with me to this day. And I just want to say also has a shadow side, you know, there's like a a real shadow to being like an adult kid. There's a real shadow to being like a hyper individualized, independent, self-sufficient, don't ask anyone for help do everything yourself, you know, kind of like child who becomes an adult and, and continues to like, act out that behavior, you know, so I'm like, very, like, intimately aware also of the downside of that. And and I'm just learning to kind of like, love that part of myself and also be like, you know, and like, I want to heal some of that. Mm. You know, because like, we're supposed to meet people as humans, we're supposed to ask for help, we're, we're you know, we're not meant to be isolated. And individualized in these really extreme ways and yet that's what i learned you know and um so anyway so i'm in sort of a process of unlearning that and really trying to like build a muscle you know like talk about yoga like building the muscle to like ask for help when i need it and call people in when i'm when i'm in need
0: you can't do everything on your own right you sometimes you need someone to help you climb the wall sometimes you need someone's shoulders to stand on to be able to see over the crowds, right? And sometimes...
1: Always.
0: You need to be somebody else's shoulders, right? Sometimes that's, that's your job. Yeah. But you, you said something really interesting then. You talked about the shadow side. And I do a lot of work with mm-hmm. shadow and with the deeper parts of our psyche that we maybe sometimes don't admit to there. And as you rightly said, with the positive comes this shadow. And the, the way I describe that is the closer you get to the light, the longer your shadow becomes. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's it's exactly that. How has that manifested for you, and how have you been able to deal with that side of you?
1: Well, you know, I feel like my understanding also of the shadow is that it's often developed to protect something, and I think the part of me that my shadow was protecting was the part that somehow along the way started to believe that I was not worthy of asking for help or that asking for help had consequences. You know, I think, I don't know how I would have internalized this because there was no evidence around it, but I think I held some responsibility for my mom and my dad breaking up, you know, because I rem- I have memories of like training myself to be a good girl, be the good girl, do what people want, perform, you know what I mean? Like,
0: yeah. because
1: I, I had felt, right, like this like tearing so early on, and I was like, "Why did this happen? And what did I have to do with this?" And so I think, you know, when I think about the shadow, I think in many ways it was protecting me from being disappointed that if I asked for help, people would not be there to, to help me, or that if I asked for help, I would be a burden, right, on them, or I might, or might there might be a, a consequence to asking for help, or or for being needy, or for being whiny, or for you know wh- whatever, like you know, very reasonable expression I was having as a child. I think I I started to like develop a belief system that, you know, made me like wildly independent and self-sufficient, but also made me really disconnected, you know, in relationship and look like I'm real clear. I'm 47 years old, like, you know, being self-sufficient. And I mean, I also think that I then, you know, would be immersed in a, a culture that reinforced that belief like many times over you know, and I'm just thinking about the root of that, even in inside of the US, right? The kind of belief that you have to become this like self made man, right? And so anyway, so the entitlement, right, but also like the pressure to like, actually follow the rules and become that. Yeah. So that played into a lot of my shaping too. But I think now, you know, I think of like the cost of like hyper individualism in my life. And I can also do an inventory of the benefits And, you know, I don't want to be alone. You know, I think in many ways, the the collapse of my former marriage is sort of tied to this. But also in the ways in which I've like moved through different jobs and partnerships and collaboration and never feeling like I could ask for help or never feeling like, you know, I feeling like I had to do all the work, never delegating work, burning myself all the way out over and over and over and over, you know, and also in times of great grief and suffering, you know, like not feeling like I could ask for help. I think for fear that someone would say no, or that I wouldn't be met. So I just think there's been a lot of unpacking for me, not around the shadow itself, but around like what's underneath it, what is it protecting, right? And how can I like unwind and unpack that behavior pattern so that I can develop something better and more and healthier?
0: I love this conversation, and there's so much to go at here, Kerry. Unpacking the shadow is a dangerous activity, right? It's, it's to be done guided. But it's such an amazing activity that you should definitely do it. The thing that interests me is... I mean, you basically say, you know, you've never asked for help just in case it was or it was rejected. You were never given it. That sits in a doubt over self-worth. Absolutely. That sits in in a doubt over acceptance. And I kind of get it with you because, you know, this fear that you have or this inclination that you have that you were partly or in some way responsible for mum and dad's um, separation. That's just timing, right? You were born. Yeah. They split up a year later, right? Therefore, it's yeah. causal. No, 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 no. Do you know what probably happened there? And you probably need this conversation with your mom and dad. They were probably at <laughs> a very difficult patch anyway. And you were like, yeah. right, we're going to try and fix it with a baby. And um you can't build a house on sand, right? You just can't.
1: Well, and it had nothing to do with me, right? But as a developing child, you know, I think you do all sorts of things to cope. And that was just one of the stories I think I told myself. And it played to your point right into my overachiever, right? So then not only was I the performer in the family, entertain everybody, make sure everybody feels good and, you know, and is happy. And, but I also then became like the good Catholic and the good student and the good athlete and the good everything. And that, followed me everywhere, you know, like achieve, 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 climb, reach, develop yourself, you know, it's never, ever, 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 ever enough, (laughs) right? Like the impossible destination that you're trying to reach became a real hamster wheel for me.
0: And you became a personification of the American dream, right? This keep going, keep going forward, achieve, buy more,
1: absolutely more. I bought right into it.
0: And I'm not even American, and i I bought into it as well. This is a big part of one of the foundations of the need for the American detox. We may not see it like this, but it is. But before we get onto that, and I do want to talk about that, yeah, I know this is maybe not going to be an easiest conversation for you. How did you pick your way through from young adult amazing family blended families are equally as strong as at birth families? How did you totally? Pick through from there to yoga. What did yoga pick you up from and where did it take you off to?
1: You know, I wasn't oriented into kind of like alternative or new age lifestyles growing up. I was on the straight and narrow, as you just mentioned, climbing the ladder aggressively and really like having an idea of like, you know, I was like, I'm gonna do the thing. I'm gonna be um, a high powered woman. I'm gonna break the glass ceiling. I'm gonna get married and have that. I had all the boxes checked. And I had a yoga practice in my life, but like, quite honestly, it was because Madonna and Donna Karen were doing it. This is in like the early 2000s, right when like yoga was just become like, what's yoga? And celebrities were doing it, and so I was curious about it. And so I was doing it not because I was pursuing any kind of spiritual, uh, you know, transformation as much as I was doing it because it was cool. And I I was obsessed with fitness. I was actually a -a workoutaholic at the time. And in 2001. Right like I think it was a year after I was married. I was working in midtown New York City, nine eleven happened. And my stepdad was at the time a lieutenant at Ladder 15, which was in the South Street Seaport, you know, blocks away from ground zero and was one of the first people to respond. I actually didn't know he was working that day. He had done a, a mutual, he had switched shifts with someone else. So I was unaware that he was actually down there when it was happening, but He responded to the towers burning. He saw, he actually saw the second plane hit the second tower and just like directed his men to run in and up when so many people were running down and out. And he made it all the way up to the 78th floor before the towers came down. And so that moment was when I think everything that I had known, (laughs) everything that I had learned to be normal and safe was sort of disrupted. And and of course, like there was all the things that came with obviously like uh, losing him on 9-11. We didn't know that he had died right away, but we knew he was in the building. I mean, it was like, we were piecing things together. Where is he, you know, can he be recovered? Where is his body? I mean, it was like, it was like a a wild time moving kind of through all of those phases, but immediate, I almost want to say instantly when that happened something in me broke and I started to question everything. I was like, how could this have happened, right? We New Yorkers are invincible, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's like really how we felt, you know? How could this have happened to us? You know, and there are obviously many reasons that I know now (laughs) as to how this could have happened to us. But at the time, it just broke open an ocean of questions and of questioning and of challenging what I thought I knew about everything. And that is what really put me sort of on this path of seeking, like seeking answers, seeking healing. And that's when yoga actually came into my life. And it was in my life, but for a very different reason. And then all of a sudden after 9-11, I would hit my mat. And it was the only place I could feel anything. Like I was so dissociated after 9-11 with my family and navigating all of you know the fallout that when I was on my mat, I felt the grief and the loss and the questioning and the rage in ways that I couldn't explain. And I didn't have words for what was happening to me at the time, but I knew I wanted more of that. Like, I knew it was real. And so anyway, so that's sort of what put me on a a path of, like, I want to know more. I want more of this feeling. This is the kind of healing I think I need.
0: Mm. But it was a feeling you felt more it was an amplifier of feeling or you felt less
1: it was messy i mean i would say like off my mat i think i was really dissociated i mean i didn't know this at the time but i was like operating from you know all of my default states to just cope and survive that moment but on my mat i felt a thing in my body that i couldn't describe and it was very messy so like i want to like sometimes i think people assume that like you find some kind of healing modality and it's like, you know, roses and light bulb. It wasn't like that for me on any level. It was messy. I was sort of falling apart on my mat. You know, I was, I think I was like unraveling a lot of the shields that were holding me together at the time, but I knew enough inside of like that puddle of grief on my mat that to be like, there's something to this practice and I want to know more. And that's really what put me sort of on the path to yoga and meditation and healing.
0: It's really interesting, this is, and yoga is a constant theme in many people's making whole, which is, you know, that's (laughs) where it all starts. That's the work. And the whole comes from the same Greek word that heal comes from, and yoga is as one. So it's not surprising, but I'm always surprised that it's as difficult to get off the mat as it was to get on the mat. Yeah. And you and I have had this conversation previously over a really great glass of Californian white. How did you <laughs> how did you get off the mat and back into life?
1: I think it took me a minute because I think once I sort of got hooked, I was like, ooh, I want more of this, right? That's literally how it happened. I didn't have words for it. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a fancy awakening. I went all the way down the rabbit hole, you know. I became obsessed. <laughs> I became like your like all American, like wellness cliche. Like I was that Lululemon pants, Malabi Sanskrit, you know, speaking, you know, chanting. Yo- and I moved to San Francisco, which was like the Mecca of yoga at the time. It took me a minute actually to emerge from that stupor. Like I went all the way into the bubble Yeah. because I was getting so much relief and clarity and healing. And, I'm, and I, I want to say that like, I don't think it's wrong. Like sometimes I think we need to turn inward, right? And do a thing within a particular container and context temporarily. But as I got deeper into that bubble, what I found was that it was actually pulling me away from reality. Yeah. And it was pulling me away from my relationships, like my husband at the time, my family. I just like was all of a sudden sort of like hooked by this very sort of extreme ideology that. Was actually more about bypassing reality, bypassing the discomfort and the suffering that is a very real symptom of being human in the world today than it was about being more connected and more engaged with, which these sort of, you know, medicines and cultures and practices from the East, from South Asia, from indigenous cultures are really meant for. They're really meant to be used to return to connection, to return to interdependence. And what I found was that yoga was in fact, in this particular kind of Westernized yoga was in fact, reinforcing my individualism it was reinforcing isolation and disconnection. And I had this moment of going to yoga and practicing South of market in San Francisco, you know, that area yes. um, at a studio on Folsom and fourth. And I remembered that every time I would, and I went to, I practiced every day. So I would show up every day and go into my, you know, practice and sweat my ass off and then come out, all will lift out. And in the awning of the yoga studio was a group of homeless youth that basically lived there. They just sort of like, you know, set up house there. And I would just walk right by them into my yoga base, practice unity and oneness with the world walk out of my yoga space and walk right by them. And I did that for a long time. And then I started to notice that they were there. And I, you know, and I think I, some dissonance, I started to like feel some like discomfort and dissonance. And then one day I just stopped and I was like, what the fuck? Like, how is it that I can have this blissed out experience and that we can chant oneness? The world and for the end of suffering for all people, and actually not acknowledge that there are people who are unhoused and living in poverty, literally in the entranceway of this yoga studio. And the paradox is just like too much. I could no longer reconcile my own well-being, my own thriving, my own blissed out state as something separate from everyone else. And so that really sort of turned. The page for me, and I started to pay attention. I started to wake up. I started to like read. And I want to say that, like, I think I can accredit yoga for giving me the ability to actually notice the dissonance and the discomfort in my body. Like, I actually think that was one of the gifts of my practice, despite the westernized culture that was telling me to just like transcend and go into the light, you know, like that the, my body was like something is not right here and i when i chose to listen to that that's when yoga for me changed entirely and that's when i actually just started to like hit the streets and become an activist and really get invested in this idea of like everyone deserves to be well right so how do we create the conditions where everyone has what they need to be well and i don't think that people necessarily need meditation to survive i think they might need you know, fair wage, or they might need healthcare, right?
0: Or equal job opportunities, or the ability to not be shot. Yeah, you know, those things.
1: All of the above. And so that was like a long process for me, of, and a super, I want to say, humble process of waking up to my own privilege, right? And how that prevented me from seeing clearly the world as it was, and how unjust and unequal, the system that we are all a part of is and what that means about the ways in which we need to show up to advance equity and to, and to fight for what you're describing, like the very basic human needs mm-hmm. that everyone deserves, right? To live a dignified and healthy life. And so that's what became my yoga, right? That's like, like people are asking me, do you still practice? I'm like, yeah, sometimes I hit my mat, but my yoga is really my activism because yoga asks what's in the way of our wholeness.
0: Exactly that.
1: And I can't answer that question unless I'm right, unless I'm paying attention to what's in the way of everyone's wholeness, right? And how, you know, our well-being is bound. And so that really put me on this path. And it's just deep and constant, I want to say constant inquiry because I have a great People are always like, and how did you become so aware? I'm like, oh my God, like I am still learning <laughs> every day. And unlearning, you know, the the shaping of being like an able-bodied, white, cis, straight woman, like that, I'm going to be unraveling, I think, for the rest of my life. And so it requires so much discipline and vigilance.
0: What I love about you is this, it's not just an openness, it's a, it's a desire, it's a, a need to have the conversation around the philosophy that sits behind your change and your healing. You know, for many, yoga is the answer. For you, yoga asked the questions, right? It, it it was the first thing, not the end thing. It's a great way of saying it, and I love that about you. And I've watched you, I've watched you change, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Change is good. It's interesting. I always describe wellness in the '90s to find yourself. You jumped on a plane, you listened to Pure Shores by All Saints, you read Alex Garland's The Beach, and you sat on a beach in Thailand in order to find yourself. Now you stay in wherever position you're in, whatever place you're in, you sit on a rubber mat and you go inwards to find yourself. And then you stay there. What I love about you is you found yourself and went, fuck. And you came back out. <laughs> uh, it's, not that you didn't like yourself. I'm, sti-
1: I'm still going fuck for the record. You know, like, I mean, because I think, you know, we're in a precarious moment. And I think, I just want to name like the discomfort of that. Mm you know, yoga doesn't like alleviate the discomfort. It just helps us get in relationship with it. And I think sometimes people just want to be comfortable. And I actually don't think that's what yoga is calling for. Yoga is calling for us to feel all of the injustice, all of the inequality, all of the suffering that is all around us and to build a capacity, quite frankly, right. To like feel that and hold that for ourselves and one another And so now I really listen to the teacher that is discomfort all the time. And I'm trying to learn every day how to just how to get in relationship with it, how to respect it, right? How to listen for what it's trying to teach me.
0: And that's the point I always describe, you know, the hardest place for someone who's got ADHD, who is an athlete. I used to be an athlete who doesn't like sitting still, who doesn't fold up very neatly. The hardest place for me to be (laughs) is on the mat. Because it's discomfort. <laughs> yeah. It's where the greatest growth is. And just for the record, Kerry Kelly, you are the best yoga teacher I have ever been taught by.
1: Oh, I love you so much.
0: I arrived in California all up Thai and English. And I left saying things like, Namaste, I'm encouraged by your presence. Right. That That's not. <laughs> uh, that <wasn't> on the... <laughs> Nick, Nick thinks it's fucking yeah. hilarious. But look, let's get to where we are now. Right? There's two things that have changed in your life, right? And I hope you don't mind me talking about them both. No. Number one is the book. And the, we'll talk about the book in a minute. Number two, there's this fucking huge love force that has entered your life and your relationship. And you, you don't talk about it much. But it's like David Gray on the stereo at a dinner party. It's just there. <laughs> it's just there. And you look so happy and so...
1: Oh, so you're making me blush.
0: Well, it's, it's true, right? It's true. And everyone who loves you sees it, right? So number one, it's amazing. And we can maybe talk <laughs> Thank about that. You. Number two. Yeah, I would love that. Tell me about the book. Tell me why you felt the need to write it. I mean, I, I can guess that. And how you found the courage to do so.
1: I mean, it's not a straight answer. And I'm, and one of the things I'm reckoning with is that it wasn't a straight line to this book. You know, it's extremely circular. And it, I think it was emerging in me for a really long time. You know, I started to write this book. The book is like sort of like a critique of wellness, right? Based on all of the things we were just talking about, because I knew that the dominant culture of wellness was selling us a lie. It was replicating right the lie of the American dream mm. and, and the lie and the myth of individualism and all the other really just toxic ideologies that have shaped not just the US, but you know many cultures, many Western cultures in particular around the world in really different ways. And so I was in my own practice and process of like unpacking that to try and understand, like, how did I get to be this way? And how did we get here, right? To this moment of, like, uh, extreme inequality and extreme injustice, despite the advancements in consciousness, despite the advancements in technology, you know, here we are, you know, with so much unnecessary suffering, where a very small handful of people have so much at the expense of most people. I was like, how the fuck did we get here? And so some of this book was my own you know, inquiry into the history and the culture that got us to this place. And obviously, I, I called it American Detox. I wrote from my own lived experience within the US. But I know this book, I've talked to people in different countries, has resonated with people because a lot of the ideologies and the, and the, and the myths that I'm talking about aren't unique to the United States, but to many Western countries around the world. And, and this is the big end of like why I wrote this book. And, you know, I think I wanted to like tell my own story and model the very messy journey of unlearning and unraveling that I went through to like humanize it and normalize it for other people. And so a lot of this book, as you know, is me kind of like, you know, humiliating myself. sharing with people all of the ways that I got it wrong and that I made mistakes and that I caused harm and impacted people. Um, and that felt really important as a lot of folks, I think, are reckoning with the impacts and implications of this very unequal system that we're all a part of and what that means about all of our unique roles and responsibilities, where, you know, depending on where we're located in it. So anyway, so this book sort of follows my own journey from 9-11 to now. And sort of that process of like falling apart and falling back together again, you know, finding wellness and getting it completely wrong again, yeah. you know, and how the detox that we so desperately need isn't some fancy juice fast or yoga fad or, you know, enlightenment book or ice bath. I could say lots of really obnoxious things about like all the different like, things that we're reaching for in sort of a commodified and capitalized wellness culture. But the detox that we need, the deep inquiry that we need, the interrogation that we all need if we want to be well individually and collectively is around how we've internalized these toxic beliefs and behaviors and how we continue to perpetuate and replicate them. And so Mm the book is about that. It's sort of an invitation for folks to be in their own inquiry around how have you been shaped? by the dominant forces and the dominant systems that we're a part of shaped to believe that you're isolated and alone shaped to believe that you need to be perfect or you're unworthy, right? Shaped to believe that it's us versus them shaped to believe in the hierarchy of bodies that says white is bad. How have you been shaped to believe that either in conscious or unconscious ways? And then what is the practice of starting to unravel those lies to activate those myths, so that we can reconnect and and recalibrate with what is true, and then hopefully actually start to work together to heal ourselves and one another towards a different kind of future.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. It's a brilliantly honest book. You use your story. There's a great quote from James Joyce, and it's been appropriated by other artists since, but James Joyce wrote it. In the particular lies the universal in my story lies the universal story. And that really applies to your book. It's really interesting. You talked about this, this need to be, to consume. And you go into a bit of this in the book, whether it's all, I wonder if, if it's politically motivated or financially motivated. And then I'm left wondering if those two things are different, whether they're just the same, whether they're just the same. And they are.
1: I mean, completely. And I think you're right. Like, you know, one of the things I really struggled with with this book was like finding one culprit, right? I think often when we hear people sort of simplifying the analysis of how we get here, we see folks blaming capitalism or we see folks blaming white supremacy. And it's actually the collusion of all of those things that has written the story that we have inherited, right? And holding that complexity is really messy and it's hard and it's challenging. And obviously, this is, you know, what Black feminists from the 70s were talking about all the bell hooks and the Combahee River Collective, like right, all had an intersectional analysis of all of these forces and the ways in which they're holding all of us back, right, from our wholeness and from our well-being.
0: That's so true. I'm, I'm going to just jump in really quickly because they are holding us all back, but they're holding certain people back more than others. And that difference is enough. To make those people who are held slightly less far back feel that if everybody had what they had then that wouldn't be fair either and there's something so powerful about what you've just said
1: i mean that's also by design right and i'm just thinking about the ways in which society has segregated us separated us my friend calls it the weapons of mass distraction so we're addicted we're distracted right we want to numb ourselves out we're dissociated in our bodies. We don't want to feel the discomfort. And all of that, that's, just, that's not just a consequence, right? That is very much a design. It's a function of these ideologies and these systems. Because the more that we feel divided, disembodied, right, disconnected, the more we turn on each other, right, and we start to assume that they're going to steal our job or they're taking from the system, right? And then we're not looking at actually the real culprits of this suffering, you know? And if you go back to like the history of the race construct in the U.S., like it was that. It was, you know, Bacon's Rebellion when the governors and the elite landowners saw the threat of workers uniting and organizing across race. Indigenous people, black and brown people, white working people saying, why do you own so much and we have so little? And so they created race and this idea of whiteness to divide the working class so that workers couldn't organize against the elite, against the people with all of the power, all of the resources, all of the money. So I think, you know, being able to kind of expose that, that some of the lies that we're being told that turn us against one another are by design, right? We're being gaslit, (laughs) yeah, you're right. And if we can actually see that and expose it for what it is, then we can turn towards one another and be like, "What the fuck? You know, like why do one percent of Americans own sixty percent of the wealth or whatever that you know ridiculous statistic is. So anyway, so I, I think you know the that this sort of orientation that you're describing, especially among, I'm just thinking middle class folks or folks who aren't at the top who are scrambling up the ladder to get a piece of the pie. Right. Under the, the very false assumption that there's not enough to go around, that it's a zero sum game, yeah. that we have to compete and kill each other, right, to get our fair share. That's all like lies and myths and really toxic training, quite frankly, from dominant systems and power. Yeah. And so uh, to name that, to expose that, is to return to one another and be like, we need to work together to actually like, disrupt and dismantle that system because it's bullshit.
0: And it's brilliantly orchestrated cruelty. You know, it's so well hidden. And we live in this time now where woke is a disparaging phrase rather than shorthand for waking up and seeing the issues.
1: Also politicized, right? Massively
0: politicized. Weaponized. And and where the far right think they've found the answer, think they've woken up and we need to join them. And everybody else thinks they've woken up and they need to join. And it's divide and conquer, and they've done it for years. The thing is, they're still fucking doing it.
1: Yep. And it's still working, especially as sort of we navigate these sort of accelerating crises, right? And our fear, our fear body is up, right? And our anxiety is up, and we're all more insecure because we don't actually have systems that take care of us. Of course, we're going to be more vulnerable to buying into some of those myths. And so we just have to be on guard. And that's where some of the embodied practices actually do come in. It's like, how do we like get out of our survival body, <laughs> our survival state, and actually return to like a really regulated, centered way of being in the world so that we can confront these really big and overwhelming and horrifying issues that we're all facing with a bit more skill, right? And a bit more center. You know, and this is what I try to do in the book. The thing that I always return to, especially when I'm organizing. And when people are getting tripped up by the politics, right? People get tripped by the politics. And folks are really hypersensitive. And it's hard to make sense of politics these days with all the disinformation and gaslighting. Is I just ask people to reflect on, are the social systems actually taking care of you? Are your basic needs met? You know what I mean? Like, do you have what you need to thrive? And the answer for most people is no. And so, therefore, something is terribly wrong here, right? And it's not your neighbor that's to blame.
0: It's not. And yet we've been told it's your neighbor and they've got their eyes on your life and your joy. And as soon as we can come together, as soon as we can share our aspirations and our humanity, that those things will evaporate. At the moment, it's it's still in the media's interest. And Fox is a classic example. It's still in the media's interest. It's still in Breitbart and Infowars. It's still in their interest. And we're seeing action there now, which is joyous, right? But there will be something to replace it. Terry, just to finish off, my penultimate question. I know, I've got, oh, I've got hundreds.
1: We should just do like a talk show or something. We
0: should do. I'd love that. Let's get guests on. Um, <laughs> was writing this book a form of healing for you?
1: I mean, yeah. I had to like turn over so many stones in this book. You know, when I first started writing this book, I wanted to write like a dissertation or a research paper. And I had an amazing editor who really challenged me to center myself in this story. And I was like, I am not centering myself. I am a white woman with like so much. Per- the last thing I want to do is center my experience. And he said to me, he said, you can speak of no one's experience, but your own. He's like, You're, that is the only right you have is to speak of your experience. And so he, was, he really challenged me. Like, You need to figure out a way to speak to your experience, to, to expose the fact that you know that your experience is often centered in these conversations and to do it in such a way that it, it disrupts. That pattern. And it teaches people, you know, it models for people what it is to actually reckon and question, you know, and interrogate our privilege and our position and also our yearning. You know, I, I also like really wanted that to come through this book that it wasn't just a book about like, I'm wrestling with my privilege, rah, 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 you know, it was a book about like, and I'm yearning to be well. And I'm writing this book because I believe that we, if we organize and we fight for what matters we can actually create the conditions where people can have what they need and thrive on their own terms. And so that yearning also called me to this book. But yeah, like reckoning, healing, crying, you know, like, and also like connecting dots that I had never connected before, you know, writing a book really challenges you to put the pieces together that made you who you are. And so this book was that for me, for sure.
0: And it comes across. Thank you. And it's going to lead me into my final question in a minute. And on the workshop, on the presentation workshop, this is what we do. We go deep into who you are, Yeah, which I love. When did you meet your current partner, Kerry?
1: <laughs> I love this. So thank you for asking this question. I ran into an old friend a couple of weeks ago who was also like, oh, my God, I saw that you met someone and you're in love. And that's so exciting. How long have you been together? And I was like, eight years. And she was like, What? Like, where have you been hiding him? Like, have you had him locked in the closet? So we met eight years ago, actually eight years ago, last New Year's Eve. I was very stubbornly and begrudgingly facilitating a marriage. Like I was performing the ceremony that married them. Anyway, they asked me to marry them. And I I was just in the throes of my divorce. And I was like, listen, you don't want me to marry you. I'm very confused about marriage. I'm hurt. I'm in trauma. Like I'm, I'm just like this. Uh, this is not a good time for me, and I don't think I'm the right person for it. And they, they were like, "You're, you are the right person for it." And so it was a, a New Year's wedding. It was a full moon. It was like a magical night. It was an epic wedding, super fun and celebratory. And I married them. And Trevor, my partner, was at the wedding, and he said he noticed me while I was performing the ceremony. And then later that night, there was like a, um, a room full of instruments. I mean, this is like one of the coolest ideas for a wedding, or like a grand piano, bass, guitars, shakers. And like at two o'clock in the morning, while the wedding was still raging, we all piled into this room and we played and sang songs. And Trevor was playing the bass and I noticed him. And so the next day we had a couple words and we noticed each other and we were like, oh, hey, let's connect. And we didn't end up connecting. And then many months later, we bumped into each other at a festival. And I said, you're that guy that was at the wedding. And he's like, you're that girl that was at the wedding. And we just became friends. And, you know, after much, I just want to say, like, resisting and trying to run from me. He has this famous line where he said, don't you dare friend zone me. And I was like, I'm not (laughs) friendzoning you. I just think we'd be better as friends, you know. And he just was like not having it. And a week later, you know, we were madly in love.
0: It shows, right? It shows. And I wonder, because I didn't know you this had happened there years ago, right? There's something that's changed since you published this book, which I think has given you the confidence or the permission to show more of that part of your life. Now, I think we can join a few things up here. And I might be wrong and you can piss right off.
1: Yeah, bring
0: it. But I think this whole idea, this whole fear of not asking in case you're rejected has flowed through your life like raspberry ripple through ice cream. Right? It's just ramped it's all the way through to the point that you kind of don't want to go public with this stuff in case you yeah. tempt fate. Because I think I think the collapse or the or the or the end of your first marriage, I think, is a haunting. It was a huge break. I can only imagine, Terry. You are not that woman anymore, and it was not your fault. I know. And there's only joy ahead of you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I feel that. And I feel gratitude also for like the path, this like beautiful, amazing, wild, messy spaghetti and meatballs path of like waking up and seeing the world and unlearning and challenging and interrogating and finding love and losing love and finding love. I mean, you know, this, it's like the whole thing is a miracle. And I do feel super grateful that this has been my journey for whatever reason. And, you know, finding love again, after losing love, I'm sure many people can relate to this has been a practice for me, there was a lot I needed to unlearn about my own patterns in relationship and my own fears. And so that's also been like an amazing journey. I mean, I feel like I'm a baby, you know, in many ways in this relationship, because I'm really trying to choose a different way of being in relationship that's more healed. And that reflects to your point, that's like new version of me.
0: For certain. I've been with Nicola for 33 years
1: now. It's amazing.
0: I would struggle to know how to be on my own. I think it's equally hard the other way after being on. Completely. People have been on their own for a long time and then they've got to be, they've got to share again. I suspect it's hard. Kerry Kelly, I thank whoever, whatever power anyone believes in. That I was on the gate <laughs> when you arrived at the Do Lectures and your mini. You had what a, a miracle! I think you had a mini, a little.
1: I have one again.
0: Good cars, right? And I thank God that I was brave enough slash jet lagged enough to be joking, arguably mildly flirtatious. And I think I, um, <laughs> I, I owe you all my thanks for yoga because it's corrected a lot in my life and and, and it's something I share with And we're doing if you look behind me the mats are out we
1: are yes
0: we are going down that sounds really dirty we're not it's not dirty we are going down <laughs> on those mats in about an hour's time you never know your luck
1: I'm gonna say that forevermore let us all go down on our mats.
0: you're wonderful your book's wonderful you deserve a bigger voice and a bigger audience and if i can help you do both of those things I, I will thank you for everything thank you
1: i feel so grateful for the blessing of our friendship i've learned so much from you i admire you so deeply i follow i like taste after you in all the socials. <laughs> what is he doing where is he now what's he talking about and so thank you for being in my life and for being such a great teacher and for making me laugh thank but you v- for that
0: and vice versa And if you find out what I'm doing and what am I talking about, please tell me. That would be mostly useful. I mean,
1: ditto, by the way, vice versa. Like, what is this?
0: Amazing. Right, I'm going to stop
1: recording.